Hello, welcome to Conversations on Compassion. I'm Leslie Langbert. I am having a conversation with Chuck Raison, Charles Raison, who is a psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health. And he's also the Mary Sue and Mike Shannon Chair for Healthy Minds, Children and Families, and a professor within the School of Human Ecology in Madison, Wisconsin. You may also remember that Chuck is the founding director of the Center for Compassion Studies, and he and I co-founded the Center for Compassion Studies here at the University of Arizona in 2014. So this is a really exciting kind of homecoming uh, for Chuck and I today to come back in conversation. We are talking today about the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, Chuck is involved in FDA clinical trials with psilocybin right now, which is a really uh, exciting field of research. Um, one that's, that's not new by any means, but we've entered into a new era exploring the power of psilocybin, of mushrooms as a therapeutic tool. And Chuck's talking with us about that. We talk about the role and potential of psychedelics in supporting the expansion of compassion and our accelerating kind of our own capacities to deepen compassion toward ourselves and others. And stick around till the end. We have a really interesting uh, piece in our conversation where we talk about the time that he was able to go and visit Ram Das, um, who was a original uh, researcher of psilocybin in the 1960s at Harvard, when he was known as Richard Alpert. Enjoy. Welcome back. Um, Thank you. We miss you around here. And yeah, I miss Tucson. So yeah, I, today I just I feel like this can be really organic. Um, I am really interested in catching up with you around the work that you're doing in the psychedelic renaissance, um, mm -hmm. I think as, as it's being termed now, and the research that you're doing in the area of psilocybin, and also kind of connecting how working with these, um, with these psychoactive plants can really be a support for expanding and sustaining compassion, you know, kind of where mm -hmm. the possible directions might be there. Um, yes, it's a really great area. Right. And then anything else that kind of, you know, that feels like it's sure. alive um, is great. Yeah, so. absolutely, man. That works for me. Yay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, um, let's catch up first around current and recent research, I actually took a, a like a mini dive into um, a couple of talks and articles that um, that you've written recently around psilocybin research and kind of the the challenge and also the opportunity in being able to study the impact of psilocybin on major depressive disorder. Tell me about what has drawn you to this, what you're really interested in investigating. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'll tell, I'll tell you what I'm not so interested in, which is interesting, which is as you mentioned microdosing. You know, I, I, I have I don't have much interest in that, and and it's not because I don't think it might not work. Although you know there was a there was a recent study by kind of one of the great leaders in the field, a young guy named Rob McCart Harris, um, which used an unusual kind of methodology and he's gotten some pushback for it, but he, he did something a bit like a randomized trial looking at microdosing versus a placebo. And, you know, it, he, he didn't see a signal for microdosing, right? So, I mean, the thing that's interesting about microdosing, right, is you, you, you do it and you're not supposed to have a big cognitive, emotional, behavioral effect that, you know, you're not supposed to trip. Mm -hmm. Of course, that makes it really interesting. It makes it easy to, much easier to, to blind with a placebo. Um, but it also means that if people feel better, people report this all the time, yeah, maybe it's a specific effect of the drug, or maybe it's the fact that placebo is a really good treatment for all sorts of things. Man, and placebo, it's good for pain, it's good for Parkinson's, it's really nice for depression. You know, I don't know as much about data with placebo making you feel more creative, but I, I'm sure it can do that too, right? So, uh, you know, even if that's not true, and microdosing does have a direct biological effect, you know, it, to me, that's more like taking a regular old antidepressant. And, you know, we need better antidepressants. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But but that's not a that's not a conceptual shift. It's not a game changer. It's not a transformative sort of way to to try to deal with the fact that, you know, in psychiatry, mental health. I mean, we've certainly helped a lot of people over the years, but but we haven't made progress as a field. Really, we haven't made progress for 30, 40, 50 years. So, mm -hmm. so microdosing is not something I have studied. Now, macrodosing, you know, the, the taking a dose that almost anybody's going to have very strange and powerful experiences with is a different kettle of fish. That, that's what interests me. Um, yeah. And I, I think you've kind of already said it. I mean, that interest comes out of a long-term interest I've had in the idea that there are that there are states of conscious experience that um, make it very very difficult to be depressed and feel miserable about life. Um, those states are hard to get into naturally, right? I mean, uh, many of us have had moments in states like that of, of of profound gratitude, of awe, of of wonder about life, where you go, yeah, you know, it's, me it's really messed up around here, but God, I'm so glad to been alive you know what, a, what an amazing you know thing it is right yeah psychedelics you know the interesting thing about psychedelics is that that they fairly often uh, induce things like that um and so i i just that's what drew them to me i i you know when i i'm not a psychonaut i i didn't i didn't come to the study of psychedelics because like a lot of people that i had done psychedelics or that i you know, had been transformed by them before I started the work. I came to them because the work I did, and and you know, you've been much involved with that in my years in Tucson. I've, I've had this enduring interest, and I in the idea that humans have repeatedly discovered um, a suite of things that you can do that produce, uh, you know, changes in mental state that are valuable, right? And and. You know, traditionally these sort of ancient practices they were usually used for healing or for spiritual purposes. Or, but I, you know, I've kind of been going around trying to retrofit them as treatments for depression because I'm a depression researcher. Depression is hugely prevalent. You know, it's this sort of it's the classic way that people suffer and lose their joy in life around the world. So it's a nice target that way, right? You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I that's how I got into psychedelics was this 
you know, it was, it was a combination of this interest I have in exploring these ancient practices and my conviction that there are certain mental states that are, um, that are the optimal antidepressants if one can really deeply experience those states. So yeah, that's, that's how I came to it. It's fascinating to me that right now uh, the timing is such that in the United States and, and elsewhere, that there is again kind of this, this willingness to research and explore um, the power of plants potentially to heal and to heal this pervasive suffering that, that you're talking about, you know, this, um, this deep intractable um, depression that so many people are, are struggling with. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting. I, I, uh, I have never lived through a phenomenon like um, what's happened in psychedelics in the last five years. I mean, and, and that's saying a lot because I've been at the, the head of a number of fads, which is partly how I built my career, right? I, I was sort of at the head of the, there's a, was a big fad about inflammation, right? Causing all sorts of problems. And then I, I was sort of fairly close to the head gate of the fad for Tibetan Buddhist meditation. And, you know, I mean, and, and so, but th th those were, and I've watched the American tendency, at least to, you know, this is going to be the answer to everything. And it's the hottest thing going. And then, and then, you know, there's this sort of revisionist history. And sometimes the thing is totally dropped because it doesn't solve all problems. A lot of times it just settles into some sort of more secondary kind of thing, right? You know, 10 years ago, mindfulness was just the hottest thing going, you know, just boom, right? And now, but nothing compares to psychedelics. So, so when I came into this space in 2015, which is how I ended up leaving uh, Tucson, which mm -hmm. I really missed being a Westerner and loving the desert and going to Wisconsin, which uh, nice people, but horrible, well, the weather's, uh, you know, <laughs> I, paid, I paid a price for this, this decision, but but when I came into psychedelics in 2015, I, I came up here to, I took a faculty position, but I also took on essentially the role of director of research for something called USONA Institute, which is a, it is a medical research organization. So non, basically it's a small nonprofit drug development company. It, it, it's a little bit like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Study, which is much more famous, right? Yeah. Which is also a nonprofit. They structured it differently, but it is a nonprofit. So MAPS, was doing um, was doing MDMA, which you know on the streets, Molly or ecstasy for right. stress disorder, right? And and there had been a group called Hefter. There is a group called Hefter, which was a small group of scientists who funded small pilot studies with uh, psychedelics, mostly psilocybin. They really focused on psilocybin. Usona was created to try to take that work and and bring it so the FDA would give approval. So there were two of us. It was seen as a mission of, of love. I mean, who would ever bother to, to put in all the money to get these things approved? They've been around forever. You know, they were they were marketed in the 50s. Um, so we thought that this is, you know, sort of a nonprofit. We were doing a societal good. What we, what we did not foresee is that within three years, four years, it's now considered to be a $100 billion a year market. Uh, in the last few years, there are now 44 profit companies at my last count actively wow. develop these things in every possible way imaginable. And so, you know, I, I, I've just been flummoxed by, you know, billions of dollars have come in. So, so you know, one of my best buddies in the field has just been named the, uh, the acting CEO of a company called Mindbed, um, 
really, really cool people looking at LSD for anxiety, um, uh, but they're valued at more than $100 billion. You know, there's a commercial, and the famous commercial entity in the psilocybin space uh, called Compass Pathways. They've been valued at more than $100 billion, right? Uh, not $100 billion, but a billion, right? Um, the, the, so both of those are billion-dollar companies. This is like, <clears throat> right? And so, you know, it's interesting to think about, well, why should this be? And, you know, what I always tell people is, I think there's, there's, there's three things. One is that, you know, in the United States, especially, I think the evidence is very powerful that we're getting more and more depressed and anxious, right? And, and that there's a new report out that middle-aged Americans are less healthy and more depressed than they were, you know, um, you know, back. People born in my time are, are feeling crappier than people that were born in my parents' time, right? You know, and young people have been especially uh, just hit by, you know, depression and anxiety and the, the pandemic made it worse. So there's a huge need. Um, the, the pharmacological approaches that we privilege in the United States for treating depression, anxiety, you know, it's emotional misery. They, they do what they do and that's it. And, and they definitely help people. Um, but there's a lot of people they don't help. And when they do help people, then, you know, we can stay on it forever. You know, there's all these, and, 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 you know, there've been new drugs that have come along in the last 25, 30 years, but they all work by the same mechanism. We're just sort of stuck, you know, there's that. Uh, then there's the fact that, um, that these early studies with psychedelics suggested they had these really powerful effects. And then I think there's something else, which is um, I think the, psych the, the, the world and psychedelics is a lot like somebody has bad post-traumatic stress disorder for something that, you know, so I, 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 I had an in-law uh, back in the past who had fought in World War II. Conservative guy, lived down in Louisiana, never said anything for like 30, 40 years about the war, right? And, but he had a lot of symptoms, nightmares, but you know. And then when the guy's like pushing 80, he goes to some support group, has this breakthrough and and to his death, the only thing he ever talked about was World War II, right? He just, just like, you'd think it was over. Oh no, right? You know, things don't end, right? And so, you know, psychedelics just got crushed, boom, um, in 71 by Nixon. I mean, they just got crushed, right? And you just couldn't do it. And it was, and so it all went away. It's like when I trained in the 90s, I had no idea that there'd been a thousand studies of psychedelics in the 50s and 60s, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, thousands of people were, you know, treated with these things. Um, and there were some, you know, the, those studies were much cruder than what we do now, but there were, you know, there were some really interesting signals there. I, I knew nothing about that. And, and I know that I'm not the outlier there because so many people have said the same thing, right? So there was this pent up passion about these drugs because people had had transformative experiences, you know, you know, back in the hippie times, right? And, and right. very early on in this work, one of the things that struck me was that a lot of people with gray hair come up to me and say, well, you know, uh, man, I, I, was, I was transformed by a psychedelic. Uh, there's a very famous psychiatrist who's a colleague of mine who told me that he was gonna be a he was, he, was, he was working as a lobbyist in, 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 in DC, wanted to be a politician. And he had a, he had a psilocybin, a psychedelic mushroom experience. And he realized he needed to be a doctor. Changed his entire life, right? He became this huge famous psychiatrist. That story has repeated a lot of times. And, you know, it's just people, people kept their yaps shut, right? You know, you just, you don't go to a party and say, hey, you know, by the way, my life was transformed, you know, by psychedelics. And, and when I first came into the space, um, Oh, you, you know, um, people, you didn't 
talk about whether you'd ever had an experience yourself. You know, researchers say, they, no, 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 that's bad, bad news, you know. Right. And, and we're still kind of, we're still a little cautious about it, but, but I've seen a total transformation, right? I mean, it's becoming normative, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, so I've never seen anything like this. That's what I'm telling you in my entire life. I've never seen anything explode at this level of, of speed and passion. And it's going to be so interesting to see kind of where this all lands because man, I agree. it's really something. Yeah. I, you know, I want to come back to you, um, touching into kind of your, your thoughts about um, what we saw in 1971 with, you know, this, this massive kind of federal um, crackdown, you know, on, yeah, on psilocybin and on other substances and thinking about too, I mean, so this is before my time, but, um, but looking, looking back at the uh, societal things that were happening at the time, you know, we were, Vietnam was happening, the civil rights movement in the U.S. was well underway. There was this sort of collective um, movement, I think, being led by young people to kind of really, you know, kind of uh, question and, and, and really um, push back on a lot of the oppressive systems that have been in place in this country for from the beginning, right? And and thinking about now the way that psilocybin research is gaining this momentum and talking about the way that even our capitalist structures are, are seeing, you know, the antenna are up and there's this valuing of this and seeing that this is this is going to be a significant um, piece of our society. And that happening in the context right now of, you know, some very similar, similar things, similar movements in terms of what we're seeing with the, what's been described as the dual pandemics, right, of, of COVID-19 and structural racism and Black Lives Matter uh, movement gaining, gaining traction. And um, what, what do you think may be different about how, or is there anything that, may, that you're feeling or hopeful about that might be different this time around for our society collectively with this versus psychedelics. Yeah. Versus, versus, oh yeah. Oh, I got a lot of thoughts about that. Um, and, and yes, absolutely. So, so where to start? Um, so the first time, so, so, you know, it's interesting. I, I am, I remember the sixties. I, I remember I went to a, a rally that Nixon held in, in, in California when I was a kid and, and, uh, you know, I remember the, the protesters and I remember all the folks with the, you know, keep America conservative and white. It was amazing, right? I mean, it, there, there were a lot of parallels. You know, the, the, there is in the United States this, this dialectic, this dichotomy. There's these two, there's these two sides and you can see it. You can see it in Hamilton and Jefferson, right? Between federal control, state control. You can see it in the Civil War. You can see it in the dichotomy, white, black. It's, it, it, it's there's this, it's always been going around and and you know it, it it it's just it's some sort of entrenched systemic it's like a river flows in its channel and and unfortunately the, about the channel of the US and and maybe this is human nature in general you know to see to you know we're, we're the good ones we're the right ones that's the enemy you know and and maybe countries do better when the enemy is not inside its own borders right but we've always had this this thing that was certainly the case in in the 60s where uh, yeah, you know, 
there was this 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 sort of potential upheaval uh, in in how America saw the power structure. And I think of all the things that were done in the 60s, frankly, civil rights was the thing that was um, the, the most trenchant, the most important. And I've, I've known people who were civil rights workers that said that one of the tragedies of the 60s was that civil rights got got sort of shunted into kind of spirituality and that the, the social you know, the social change was in many ways lost. But setting that aside, you know, psychedelics, they, they were such a part, they were identified so thoroughly, not so much with the uh, civil rights, but certainly with the anti-war, right? And the, 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 the change in cultural mores, right? It was, as now, it was very much a Caucasian white kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it was seen, you know, Nixon said that Timothy Leary was, you know, public enemy number one, the most da- famously the most dangerous man in America. And of course, you know, Leary was the guy that said, tune in, turn on and drop out, you know, the, that really thought that, that psychedelics were going to sort of transform society and be the answer to everything. So in that light, you know, people really decried it at the time. There was research going on. People felt like these agents, that, that they, they could be medicalized, that they could be contained within that, blew up, went out, right? So this time is extremely different. And there, there are a lot of reasons to think that the same thing won't happen. Some of them good, some of them bad, depending on how you look at things. But if we think about, so how did this all get started again? What, what the heck happened, right? And what started, you can trace it very, very clearly to, frankly, to a couple of people. Um, there's a guy named Rick Strassman, who was a researcher in New Mexico, who finally the FDA agreed to let him give, I think it was DMT, I think he maybe did a psilocybin study too, but to folks, right? And just, mm-hmm. just do it, right? And then um, a, a buddy of mine, a colleague, a guy named Bob Jesse, who is a very famous guy in the world of psychedelics, um, He'd been this vice president of, at Oracle. You know, he was a he was an engineering guy, and but he had this deep commitment to this belief that that psychedelics might be one of the the elements that could sort of transform the world. You know, and 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 in all the ways that that many of us would like to see it transformed. And he did, you know, in a lot of it's a lot of it's detailed in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. But you know, he did, yeah, it's a great book. He did all this due diligence to 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 try to tee it up. And, and it led to a, a famous meeting at Esalen actually back, I think in the very late nineties where some real stakeholders were in the room and they said, okay, you know, if we want to try to re-enliven psychedelics, what can we do? We, we don't want uh, the 1960s again, right? That, that, that mm-hmm. bust. And so Bob uh, and the people in the room said, you know, there's a path, the pathway is to look at these for medical disorders, for for psychiatric stuff, to medicalize them. And now Bob is pretty old, old, but he's not, you know, I'm the medicalizing guy, but he recognizes this as a strategic move. And then, you know, well, okay, that's great, but if we're going to do this, it's high risk, a lot of stigma, who can we find to do the studies? We need somebody that has a really powerful reputation. And so they hit upon this guy who's another great colleague of mine, Roland Griffiths, who was a you know very well respected substance abuse researcher at Johns Hopkins, but Roland had had his own experiences with meditation that had been transformative. So he was open to this idea that 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 there are mental states that could be transformative. And Bob came on his team, and that was the start of all this. And really, you know that that, that was what really launched the ship in the United States. Now there were people that were doing it, uh, Franz Vollenweider, especially in Switzerland, in in Europe, but and it 
just came from there, right? And first they did these very cautious studies and healthy normal controls showing that people could take it and they were okay. And afterwards they said, wow, that was the most powerful thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there came a time when they said, okay, now the next step is to try it out in people that have some sort of disorder that we can treat. And um, th- th- there were, um, you know, they, they, the, the folks that were sort of hefter that were doing this got together and they said, well, why don't we look at, at um, you know, um, end of life cancer? Because, you know, if you're going to die anyway and you're miserable and depressed, you know, it's like it's not such a big risk. Right. And so they and, and, and why psilocybin? You know, um, well, the, when they told me when I joined, this is, well, three letters, it's not LSD. You know, you when you started talking, you, you referred, you said, you said mushrooms, in case people don't know. Psilocybin, you know, if I say, hey, man, we're, we're studying LSD, you're like, oh, you evil hippie. But, you know, if you're studying psilocybin, you're like, oh, what, what's that? Magic mushrooms, like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, that's what you sit in the forest with. You know, it, it doesn't have the same industrial strength, right? So they chose psilocybin and and there were three groups that did studies. Charlie Grove at UCLA did an early study, a very small early study, but larger um, studies with a more standard design were done at Hopkins and then just independently. Guys at, at, at NYU in New York got the same idea. So there were these two studies that were done. They were both small, but they were, you know, they gave half the people uh, a very high dose of psilocybin. So, you know, they had a and the other half got a placebo and they just looked to see what happened to their anxiety and depression. And the short answer was that, you know, one dose of psilocybin um, essentially cured the anxiety and depression of about 70% of them, 80% of them for six months. And now we think some of them up to four years. That's well, you incredible. know, one Prozac pill, right. And, and <laughs> six months later. So, so this, this was the, this was what launched it. Right. And then, and then people were like, Oh my God. I mean, Steve Ross and, and Roland Griffiths, they got like more than a billion hits on their website. They crashed their website. You know, they were on the front page of the New York Times. And then simultaneously, this young genius named Robin Carter Harris, who was working at Imperial, uh, one of the greatest communicators of all time, began doing studies also that were hugely impactful. Small, little bitty studies, but, you know, showing these results and the world was ready for it. And so there was this explosion. So now, you know, you've kind of got these agents as, as these sort of, um, well, it's like, you know, it's like, a, like atomic energy. Uh, man, if it's an atomic bomb, that's bad news, right? But if it's an atomic reactor, well, we used to think that wasn't bad news, but, you know, you're, you're using it for peaceful purposes. Medical, you know, these medical treatments were like the atomic reactor, you know, just like the reactors contained and all this stuff that, you know, you get two therapists with you, you're in a clinical setting, it's, Right, you know, so it's it's it's, it's cleaned up, it's safe, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that allowed this to then go forward, but then two things happened simultaneously that are at odds with each other, and they're very interesting. So the first thing that happened was the growing realization that if you wanted to bring these to the FDA approval, it takes a lot of money, and and so people began to think initially, well, maybe we can't do it philanthropically. You know, if we can't figure out a way to make a profit, people aren't going to do it. And, and that's Compass Pathways explicit story. So, you know, um, so they became a for-profit company in the psilocybin space, and they were able very quickly to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Boom, boom. Right. But what that set in motion was this sort of thought of like, oh, my God, this is a damn gold mine. Mm-hmm. And 
along with that, then the idea that that the way that you would think about them, Leslie, is plant medicines and as a spiritual experience and as, you know, you're doing this to, to experience certain states of consciousness that may be valuable to you. Hmm. You know, th there begin to be this movement that, well, you know, maybe things are just drugs, right? I mean, we, we think a lot of things are important that don't turn out to be important, right? You know, you, you think, you know, yeah, yeah, maybe it's because, you know, you felt one with the universe or maybe it's just that your neurotransmitters change in your hippocampus and, you know, you don't need to feel one with the universe, right? You know, and because of course, if that's the case, then it can really be medicalized. And so it's an irony. So my best buddies are totally on this side of the fence. They they believe these are drugs are going to be, you know, and they're they're very ethical people. And if, if you know, but that so that is there. There's all these folks that 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 now range from from folks that from companies that really want to do these as sort of um, you know sort of synergistic treatments with a psychotherapeutic approach, right? Mm -hmm, to people. Mm -hmm. No, we're looking to put, you know, we're going to give an IV in your arm. You're going to come in. We're going to give it to you. You know, you, you get, it's just a drug, right? So, so this is why I think, partly why I think that, that we're not going to get a repeat of the 60s this time because there's money to be made and because there, it, it's not being particularly framed up at this point in as, as something that's a threat to the dominant, you know, social power structure. But at the same time, there are these movements to decriminalize, right? And so like Oregon is this really interesting thing where they've passed a law where, you know, in, in about a year's time, you're going to be able to take mushrooms, go to a therapist, sit in her office, eat your mushrooms and, 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 have, you know, and then work with these things therapeutically. They're being decriminalized in certain states. So there, there is a sort of movement towards more like the, the, the sort of sixties kind of thing that these should just be available. But, but, you know, that field has also been softened by pot, by marijuana, right? I mean, mm -hmm. cannabis is out there ahead of it, kind of, you know, clearing the path that maybe that's not such a bad thing either. And, and to me, the ultimate proof of this is Rick Perry, who you may remember as the governor of Texas, big supporter. Oh, yeah. Oh, arch conservative. He has been a main player in uh, Texas getting on board for PTSD treatment with, with ecstasy, with MDMA. So Whoa. much. Oh yeah. My understanding <laughs> is that the Did very, not the, see that coming. Oh, I know. The very Republican <laughs> uh, Texas uh, House of Representatives has almost unanimously passed a bill in support of, of, of really providing funding so that, so that psychedelics can become treatment modalities. Wow. So there you go, right? I mean, this is, this is so, you know, things have really changed. And, and mm -hmm. you know, there are these big sort of big survey studies now looking at huge populations suggesting that, that use of psychedelics does not seem to correlate with bad outcomes in people, right? right. So there's that too. And in fact, in fact, me and my buddies have just done this, this 2,500 person survey uh, really suggesting that even if you just take them on their own, which I, I do not officially recommend in my position with USONA, but if you take them on your own, people self-report, wow, we're a lot less depressed afterwards. And we're finding that too, right? So, you know, they're, they're being decoupled from heroin and, and crystal meth and things like this that, that kind of ruin people's lives. There, there aren't that many people, in my opinion, whose lives have been ruined by psychedelics, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a really powerful and important distinction, particularly um, for so many people. I mean, I, you know, I was a, a child of the 70s and 80s, you know, with Nancy Reagan and Just Say No and Dare and all of that. And just, 
pretty much anything that was unregulated, like anything that was not alcohol was like, you know, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of fear um, mm -hmm. instilled um, around that, not a distinction made between substances that um, were utilized to really kind of achieve a sense of oblivion and like disconnection from one's experience. And, and my understanding is, you know, psychedelics are really kind of the opposite of that. Like it's not about sort of avoidance, but really about wanting to, to be drawn more into kind of uh, being able to see or understand or gain some awareness of the fullness um, of one's experience. And I, this is fascinating to me that the things that you're that you're outlining about the landscape um, and in the country now and why there's much more of a receptivity to not only the research, but really um, potentially making available um, psilocybin to our population at large for healing. And I'm, I'm really interested, too, in like the the pieces around seeing seeing psilocybin as a drug. And then seeing it as um, that there's that there's something there's something else, which brings me to another question. And it may be too early for these answers. So even if it's not from, you know, we haven't been able to tease this out in research. I'm really interested in just kind of what your intuitive sense about psilocybin is. When we, when you and I worked with cognitively based compassion training, and you know, there's kind of like the three. Um, maybe three kind of core pieces that we really point to as being so integral, right? And so one is that ability to kind of stabilize one's attention. Um, another is recognizing our deep interconnectedness, our interdependence um, with one another and you know, being able to develop the skills to kind of hold the fullness of our own experience. So the things that are difficult for us and the emotions that go along with that, um, to be able to create room, to create space for those rather than to turn away from them or disconnect from them, which really opens the yeah. gate for us to be able to be with others in their suffering, right? So we spend a lot of time, right? Like kind of, and I know there's so much, so much happening in compassion science to want to try to kind of get into the black box of compassion training and all of these different protocols to see like, what is it, you know, is there something particularly salient that's actually rewiring our neurons or shifting the way that we're um, able to see ourselves and others. And I'm, I'm curious as to what you are seeing or what you're intuiting about, about mushrooms, about psilocybin, being able to create this kind of long-term sustainable change to really shift someone from this intractability of depression and, and the, the feelings of hopelessness and sort of the, all of the, um, the heavy pieces of that to really have such a powerful shift to see one's world in a different way and to move through their, their life and, and perhaps even you know the brain chemistry being so different. What's happening there? Well, so this is really interesting. So this is my particular obsessive interest. In fact, I'll tell you about a study we're gearing up to do to try to directly test the question of, of how important is the psychedelic experience. If you look at the data, um, almost, almost always, um, there are qualities to the acute psychedelic experience to predict the later outcome, whatever you're interested in. So whether it's quitting smoking, quitting drinking, anxiety, depression, I'm only thinking of one study that didn't find it, and there's probably reasons for it. Um, 
Studies show that if you have certain types of ac acute experiences while you're tripping on the psilocybin, then you're going you're gonna to do much better down the road. And so what are the experiences that people have identified as predicting good outcomes? The best characterized is, is something that's been called mystical experience or mystical type experience. And it's a construct that goes back, um, a, it was sort of formalized first in the 60s by a guy named Walter Pankey. Um, but it has these various elements of it. And I'll see if I can remember all of them, but basically, so people have this sense of a unitary, it's a unitary experience. They feel that they are connected to things in ways that are much more intimate, powerful, and widespread than they realize. And that can be God, it could be other people, it could be the universe. And with that then comes this sort of sense that their lives have some deeper purpose that they didn't understand, right? So, you know, like if you're suffering and you just feel like a loser and I'm so horrible and then all of a sudden you have a change of vision where you go, yeah, I'm suffering, but you know, I'm contributing to something larger than myself. I'm part of a larger whole, my, my life has meaning. That's that, pretty hard to be as depressed if you feel that way, right? You know, um, mystical experiences often have what's called noetic quality, which is that they're, they're hard to describe, they're often blissful. Um, but basically, this is, you know, people, you just have this deep sense of interconnection, purpose, joy, um, and a sense, a sense that you've experienced something in a way that transcends words. So for instance, people have an experience like, I realize love is the driver of the universe. It's the only thing in the universe, right? Now, if I say to you, you know, the universe is love. You go, yeah, that's like a bad 1960s song. You wouldn't even put that <laughs> greeting card, right? But then the person says, no, 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 you don't understand it. it yeah, I know it sounds hokey and stupid, but no, I, I, yeah, I felt it, right? You know, so that's one type of experience that in study after study has predicted being less depressed, less anxious, not drinking drugging as much. There, there's uh, the, something that I'm at least as interested in, if not more, though, is that, that psychedelics and certainly psilocybin also have a tendency to bring people face to face with their demons, right? So mm -hmm. there's construct called experiential avoidance, uh, which I'm really good at. So I'm interested in it where you, you know, essentially, you know, on some level, there's a bunch of stuff you don't want to face. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, we're all like, right, that. Like, right, you know, <laughs> like if you gave me a chance, maybe we could just sit around, I could cry for a couple of days and grieve and sob and I, I don't want to go there. Right. So, so, I, so I, 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 I'm too chicken to go there. So I just get depressed instead. Right. And so, so psychedelics have a, a, bizarrely effective way in many people, especially people with depression, it seems, of uh, pulling stuff right out and putting it right in front of your face, right? So, you know, um, you know, people that are more mystically inclined, and you and I have talked about this, think maybe the, the plants have a consciousness, maybe they know what they're doing. Yeah. So, you know, kind of a hard-boiled reductionist like me, what I'd say is, yeah, well, you know, actually your brain has all this stuff in it that you don't, that, that other parts of your brain are pushing down. You want to talk about a power structure. Your brain's like, you know, got the same power structure dynamics and the psychedelics you know, they, they they take that that overbearing rigid boss and and you know knock him out put him to sleep or or get him drunk or something where he you know he falls offline and these other parts of your brain start talking right and 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 but it doesn't feel like uh, it's your brain talking it feels like you're being confronted with stuff from the outside you know and and this is why it's so powerful right because what i tell people you know if you say to yourself, you know, I'm a beautiful woman, that's not going to be as powerful as if I say to you, Leslie, you are a beautiful woman, right? We we tend to privilege things that we hear from the outside as being more valid, right? Mm -hmm. So let's have that property. It's like, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the person is like, I'm thinking of, of one uh, subject that we worked with who had gone through a divorce and, uh, 
you know, bad marriage and all this, but uh, she cried the the entire time over grief of losing the marriage, right? Afterwards, she's like, dang, I, I, wow, I didn't realize I felt that way. But then, you know, she went around, thought about it for a long time. She's like, well, yeah, mm, wow, I guess I do. You know, I feel better. I grieved it, right? So that, that, and this has been called by the same Robin Card Harris has been called emotional breakthrough. Uh, phenomenon where you that you you confront something painful, challenging, and you either make peace with it, you feel like you transcend it, you deal with it, you look at it. You know, the more you can do that, the more undepressed you get, the, the more unanxious you get. The more you fight it, the more you you know just it goes on and you're lost and you can't deal with it in the psychedelic experience. The worse you do, right? So there's that, and then and then people get this sense of insight. Like I realized, oh man, I always pick women like my mom, right? You say, well, yeah, that, that that's another sort of cliche. No, no, you don't understand, man. I, I, you know, I felt the presence of my dead mom. And she said, you know, son, I'm up in heaven and please don't keep, you know, I tortured you and I'm so sorry. So please don't keep, you know, like that, right? And people go, oh my God, yeah, mom, I hear, you know. So, so those phenomenon, those sort of phenomenon seem to have these long-term effects. So I, I personally suspect it's not that it's not biological or physical. I mean, I, I you know, you, you're, you're thinking because your brain's got physical activity, but I think there is something about the narrative, about the experience that then kind of changes how people think and feel. You see the thing with, with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, something overwhelming, surprising, horrible happens, and then the person's not the same for years after that. Mm -hmm. It's so surprising that something overwhelmingly powerful uh, unexpected and positive or, or, you know, kind of cleansing, like a psychedelic experience might have the same effect, right? So I think there's a lot of evidence that the, the, um, the character of the acute experience, it really does, it's not that it's not biological, but it, it, it's that, that the, the experience does something that, um, that then changes how people look at the world. But there's a wrinkle, and the wrinkle is um, comes from what folks that have done studies in London have talked to me about, which is that you know there were a number of people. Most most of their patients have been depressed for a long time. They'd failed antidepressants, and some of them had these really profound experiences and felt remarkably better. Mm -hmm. And then about three months later, they, they crashed. And uh, there's a very haunting movie that they made about this study. You can watch it online. It's called magic medicine, I think, where they, they follow the lives of three men, none of whom had a particularly good outcome, but one of them had this amazing cure. The guy, the guy had been in bed, just completely cut off from his family. It's tragic for like, you know, years. And he's back, the, the, the children are saying, oh, we got our father back. And then boom, he lost it. And he's back in bed. And what he said, no, I'm worse off now because I remember what it used to feel like. I, I got a taste of freedom. I, I, I saw the pearly gates and I got yanked back. and. You know, I can, I can remember the experience, but I don't feel it anymore. I've lost that, that embodied conviction, right? So there may be, even, even if the narrative is important, I worry that there may be a, uh, there may be a, a more core physical effect, you know, that mm. like some sort of period, like a regular antidepressant, right? And that when that fades, you lose the, the, the immediacy of the experience. Now, not everybody, not everybody has that happen. And, and the folks that tend not to have that happen are people that haven't been depressed for like a thousand years or, or people that are confronting very specific problems. So, you know, in those cancer studies, people, you know, they had their ups and downs in life after that. But, but you know, most of them, uh, they said, no, I, I, I saw cancer differently. I, 
I, I, I, I had a feeling that I accepted my mortality and I it's a year later, I still feel that way. Yeah, I'm going to die. And I, I'm kind of down, but you know, they, they, they there was a, they, they point back to it and say, no, I, it, it's still really vivid. So I, 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 I'm not the only person that has this, this sort of concern I've realized, although it's not being articulated much, but one of my concerns about using these agents as, as medicines is that, um, they might be especially useful for people that are confronting specific problems. Mm -hmm. So they're better for something like post-traumatic stress disorder than for something like generalized depression. And I'd be willing to wager you that they're gonna be better um, for people that are just starting out with something like depression, where you know you're, 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 something bad's happened, you're down for the first time in your life, your brain's beginning to go into this pattern. You disrupt it, right? And, and you, get, you, you sort of get a different view. And instead of heading this way over the next 30 years, you kind of just skew off a little bit, but the longer you go, right, you know, whereas, you know, people that have been depressed for 20, 30 years, like coming into our studies too, mm-hmm. there's a lot of evidence that, you know, your brain, it just, it, it gets ossified into this state where you just, zoom, I'm bad, oh, it's bad. You know? And 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 so these, these agents seem able to, to perhaps disrupt that for a period of time. And that disruption seems to have to do with the experience, but they're, they're, it may be that their brains are sort of hell-bent, you know, if I can say it that way, on regressing back to the state that they're sort of stuck in, right? And so whether that could be overcome by repeated psychedelic treatments, we don't know. Whether there are ways to try to keep the experience alive, mm-hmm. which me personally that's this so the folks in london like that have come out of that like Roz watts and stuff that's what she's doing she's devoting her life to figuring out you know not not are we gonna you know yeah we're probably gonna have to treat people more than once with psychedelics but can we can we keep it down to a dull roar and do things like maybe compassion meditation right you know i mean there's any number of things right so that's what that's what i think the data show now we're we're getting ready to do this really interesting study at uw where we're going to take folks. Uh, we're starting with just healthy, normal folks to test it out. But the, the long-term idea is, if it's the case that that the experience is really what helps people reorganize and overcome their depression, you, you know, you, you got to kind of remember the experience, probably, right? So it turns out yeah. you can give people a drug like it's, it's called Versed, which is just like kind of going on an alcoholic bender. You know, you if you black out, you know, you're dancing on the table, but you don't remember anything, right? So this does that and so we're going to do a study where we give people psilocybin but at the same time give them a dazolam versed to see if you know and we don't know whether we can do this yet in terms of whether it'll work we're just starting this but you know can we cause people can we have people have a psychedelic experience right so you're laying on the couch you're going oh my god i i get it now right but the next day you go like i don't remember anything Right. So you do that. And then if, you know, if a month later people say, man, I, I don't remember anything about that day, but I'm a different person, man. I, well, that would suggest that you don't need to have memory of the experience, at least for it to do the transition. Right. It, it, it may be that just having that acute effect that, that, that it's the biology that's causing the experience. Right. In some way. Right. And then, you know, if you see that, then the next step would be just to knock people out with like anesthesia and see if they wake up and say the same thing. On the other hand, you know, if we do this study and it turns out that people go, no, I feel just as depressed as I did before. Damn, I don't why, yeah, I don't remember anything, you know. I have a couple of vague memories, but it's not embodied. Well, then you've kind of shown, you, you've, you've, you've provided data that would support the idea that, wow, yeah, maybe it is something about how we work with the experience. Mm-hmm. The key factor, 
right? But you know, what I like about it is that it, it, it like, like good scientific studies, you know, we'll see, we'll see, we don't know. Right. So we'll see, you know, so, but I, I, if I'm a betting person, I think that you have to have, I, I think we'll find that when we block the memory that people don't feel the decent experience did much for them. You know, they might get a little bit of an afterglow for a week or whatever, but yeah, not, not six weeks of, you know. Yeah, I'm so, finding that an interesting, I mean, that's a, it's a brilliant um, way to study this. And, and I'm, I'm curious about that too, because as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, isn't, isn't the, the power of it in the, what you've described so well is, you know, the insight and, and the sort of reappraisal of whatever it is that we're holding that we may not be conscious of, you know, when you're talking about the, you know, that part of your brain that kind of gets yeah. quiet so that the other piece that you're, you know, like so hardcore, like defending yourself from, and you get that reappraisal that you can then, you know, journal about it and then reflect on it. And, and even if you don't have it as, as conscious in your memory, you can go back to, if you've, you know, captured it somewhere to be able to bring that yeah. um, back. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really interested to see what, what your findings are when you come from that. Cause that also to me kind of speaks to the question of, is this simply a drug or is Absolutely. there, you know, something, is there more to this? Yeah. You know, I, I know we talked about, um, we talked about before the, you know, so, so many different, different questions and, and thoughts that I have, you know, particularly with us being in the pandemic and um, the incalculable um, grief collectively that is, that is in the world and, and our tendencies just as, you know, as we were kind of joking about, but, you know, obviously very, very real, this, this um, sense that all of us have is human nature to avoid that, which is painful. And this, the tendencies that we, you know, may, may wish to kind of fall back into familiar patterns. And I know during this time um, in compassion studies, we've, we've been really busy, really active, a lot of people reaching out um, to take part in compassion programs, you know, asking like, how can I expand compassion for my family members, for myself during this time? And I'm, I'm wondering about the power of psychedelics to be almost an accelerator for some of the things that we are working through in compassion meditation practice. Um, Self-compassion to me feels like this is a potentially a really um, alive piece. And so, you know, as, as you obviously know what we're talking about when we talk about self-compassion, but for those who are listening that may not have um, been involved with the compassion training before, we're really talking about ways to begin to develop the skill of being with uh, difficulty and challenge and and painful emotions and experiences without judging ourselves really harshly, without turning away from those experiences, um, really learning how to be with that because that's so critical to being able to be with the suffering of others and not feel that sense of um, empathic overwhelm, a sense of empathic distress. You know, what you've, what you've been talking about 
in terms of some of the experiences that people have had has me wondering if, if psychedelics aren't potentially a really powerful tool to kind of get us further more quickly rather than, you know, that, that continued commitment of ideally every day we're on the cushion, but so many of us are not. Um, and, and raising awareness of our deep interconnectedness, which I think is the critical, critical um, place or, or, or theme, I think, that, that we need right now um, in order to help ensure that we, that we don't destroy ourselves and the planet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, um, I do think psychedelics perhaps hold that potential. Um, and so, you know, one of the, uh, when you talk about the difficulty of say, sitting on a meditation cushion every day. So I've gotten interested in this idea of, uh, I call it of them adaptive stressors that there are, that if you look at a lot of the ancient practices that, that people did to enhance well-being, they, they, they were stress, they were stressors, right? There were certain types of stressors, you know, like we study hyperthermia, but sweat lodge has been around forever. And, you know, you've been, sweat lodge. you know, it's a, oh, you know, it's a big stress, but you come out and you have this sort of cleansed, you know, right? You know, fasting stressor, exercise is stressor. Uh, meditation can be a stressor. Um, psychedelics are, are, are psychologically very stressful for many people, right? So um, it's just that these stressors, they're, they're a certain type of stressor. They're, they go on for a certain time, amount of time. They're time limited and they occur to a certain degree, right? So, and, and instead of making you weaker, it's like lifting weights. You, you build, they help you build up resilience, which then allows you to feel less depressed and less anxious going forward without needing to take a drug every day. That This is where I think that psychiatry needs to go in general is discovering more of these. But one of the attractive things about psychedelics, like some of the other stuff that we've studied is that I say, you know, the problem with these adaptive stressors in the modern world is a lot of them require renunciation, right? So if we go back to experiential avoidance, man, I do not want to think about, you know, my deeper feelings and upsets, so, but I can drink, I can be busy all the time. I can watch TV all the time. I can play video games all the time. So if I want to face that stuff, I, I, I have to renounce that, right? If, if I want to lose weight, I have to renounce the refrigerator. If I want to exercise, I have to renounce my evolved mandate to sit on the couch, right? So, so, so that's always hard. If you're depressed, it's extremely hard, right? I mean, because depression robs you of some of the behavioral activation. So I say, you know, this is all these ancient practices are acts of renunciation, but some are active and some are passive. And, uh, you know, active ones are, are the ones probably that are best day in, day out. You know, they're, they're the ones that should be sort of your, your, you know, your life accompaniment. But man, if you can't get off the couch because you're just crying, you're laying there, I, I can either have you start running 30 minutes a day or I can put you in my hyperthermia machine, which does a lot of the same physical things that exercise does. And yeah, you got to get up, you got to lay there and it's hot, but it, it's not like running 30 minutes a day, right? You can do it. It's passive. And, and psychedelics have a bit of that passive quality, right? Mm -hmm. so, you know, if I say, Leslie, now listen, man, this afternoon, I want you to meditate and I want you to have a powerful, transformative experience where your mind is blowing and you feel deeply connected with the world. Well, maybe I can go give it a try, but, you know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if you came back and said, I was trying so hard I couldn't do it, right? But if I give you 25 milligrams of psilocybin, um, that may not happen to you because, you know, the brain's complex and these are fascinating drugs, but it's much more likely to happen to you, right? All you got to do is take the pill and lay there and, and your odds of having 
the sorts of experience that might engender increased compassion occur. It's a, there's a passivity to it that, that makes it very, very interesting because it is, it's got the characteristics of an active stressor, which we evolved to need, but the doorway into it, uh, it's not easier because psychedelics can be scarier, but it's sort of easier, you know, because like I, I, you know, I, I, I cannot get to beyond my experiential avoidance in my regular mind, but you know, uh, psychedelic, I don't have a choice. Right. And, and so it's like that. Right. So there is a danger, I think, however, because I've seen this with my own eyes. Uh, and this is a danger of all mystical experience, which is, you know, you're one with God. And then you begin thinking, well, maybe I am God if I'm one with God. Right. You know, and there's this sort of uh, narcissistic expansion and, and I have seen this happen with people with psychedelics, especially people who do them a lot, psychonauts, they may have, you know, where they, where the drugs begin to make them feel, you know, like, like special or like they're, you know, instead of, instead of, instead of humility, they, they, what gets created is this sort of more grandiosity, psychedeliciosity. And that's a risk, you know, but, but that, again, you know, people that have these intense unitary mystical experiences can go off the rails that way, just in general. I mean, it's a, that's a common experience of people that are, that are manic, right. Where, and, and it can be catastrophic, right. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, it, there's a little bit of playing with fire there, but, but most people, no, most people seem to go the other direction, the direction that you referenced, which I think is very positive of, of, if anything, feeling humbled by the immensity of the interconnectedness and things like that. So, yeah, I do think that, um, I do think that they hold that potential. Now, you know, I, I, I often tell people, I'm really glad that I'm studying them as a treatment for depression rather than trying to have them save the world because it's not so easy to save the world. And when you look at things that go on in the psychedelic community, it's not Garden of Eden, right? I mean, right. so, right. yeah, so I don't believe that, you know, couldn't they help? Yeah, is it, is it useful for things to help? Yeah, God, it's useful. But, you know, there is, as I, as I said early toward the beginning of our talk, you know, um, the search for the one thing that's gonna solve all problems is a, is a it, it maybe it's a human thing, it certainly is an American thing. and. I increasingly think it's pernicious because uh, it, it, it ain't going to be there that we, the, the, you know, I'm not a Buddhist, but I greatly admire many aspects of their way of looking at things. And one of those is, you know, if you're, if you're on this earth looking around, you know, you have a moral responsibility to make it better, but you ain't ever going to make it perfect. This, this is not a realm that can be perfected, you know, evolutionary processes as they happen in this realm, don't they, they, you know, once, you know, you know, once you become a perfect Buddha, yeah, you're kind of still around, but you know, you're really off. You know? I mean, they, they recognize that as long as you're creatures like us, you know, perfection, there's something, there's something um, about the universe, about our universe that is um, just uh, perverse in that way. You know, it just, you know, you just, you, perfection cannot be found. And so I, I, I I, I'm glad that I'm not trying to save the world with these things. I'm just trying to treat depression, which will make a difference. But so, but 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 I, I but I'm not belittling your point. Yes, yes, I think that this is something. So, and there are now two studies. There's one from Franz Vollenweider, and there's one from Roland at, at, at Hopkins, where they took uh, either meditators or religious professionals, and they gave them psychedelics, uh, most of them for the first time. So, you know, Franz's study in Switzerland, he took these hardcore Zen meditators. And um, 
I, I can't remember his exact study design, but they, these guys are meditating, you know, eight hours a day for years kind of stuff. And he gave them psilocybin and a bunch of their minds were just completely blown, you know, and, and a number of them, well, that was where I've been trying to get to all these years, you know, mm-hmm. you know, um, and in a religious professional study, Roland did what, what Roland said was really interesting is that, yeah, there was a synergistic effect between sort of spiritual practices and taking a psychedelic. And that, that the psychedelic made the, you know, I mean, plenty of religious uh, professionals are really just atheists or agnostics, you know, liberal, like liberal Christianity, you know, if you speak to the fire, they don't necessarily really believe, you know, the, the, the manifest content, right? But he said, what's really interesting is those folks began to believe, well, maybe there is a God, whoa. The folks that were conservative and evangelical went the other way, you know, where they were like, wow, you know, the universe is much bigger than I thought. Maybe I shouldn't hold such rigid views, right? So that's another thing that psychedelics seem to do that's interesting is they, 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 they seem to have this, this tendency to push you toward a middle when they work, right? They, they just push you the direction you need to go that way. You know, if you're overly like fundamentalist, you know, they will push you into a more open space. If you're just sort of lacking a sense of the spiritual, they'll push you, you know, they kind of push you toward the middle. And it, that's true. And that, that could be very, very useful for our world, right? No, I, I love this. It's very, um, I, I'm really appreciating the way that you're grounding this and, and so clear about, you know, yeah, we're, this is an exciting time. Um, these are powerful medicines, but, you know, we were, I remember having so many conversations with you about um, compassion training too, that were like, yeah, you know, this is not, this is not a panacea, you know, and, yeah. and mindfulness is not, a panacea it's it's simply um this is one more tool that we have available to us to help support us to find to find balance to find to find the middle that piece that you said you know that this this realm is not to be perfected um yeah so that it feels as though there's uh there's so so much um to come so much and there's so many exciting things that that are happening. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, and I don't think I ever did when you were here. Um, if I remember correctly, there was a time that you had an opportunity to go um, sit with Ram Das and talk with him about psilocybin research um, when he was, when he was still alive. Uh, yep. And I've been curious, and I don't know if you're feeling comfortable, if you want to touch on this at all. Um, but what, what, in your conversations with him, like, was there any particular guidance or wisdom that he offered that kind of helps to inform the way that you are thinking now about the research questions in this area? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm glad to talk about it. Nobody ever asked me about it. So this, this is a scoop, right? So early on in the days of USONA, um, one of our board members ha- had been going to visit Ram Dass for, you know, years. And of course, Ram Dass was Richard Alport, who was Timothy Leary's, you know, uh, sort of partner in crime at Harvard, early, early proponent of psychedelics who went to India and, and, and had a profound experience with a Hindu teacher, Baba Neem Karoli. Um, but that, that what, what, what Ram Das always said was that, you know, psych- psychedelics take you there and then you get whipped back and you haven't, you know, you're, to, to, so as a sort of a counter to this idea of how, you know, can they be a, a prod towards increased compassion? I think that's true. And yet it, well, Ram Das is right that, you know, 
um, you enter states, uh, the lucky ones that had these, one, not, you know, but that had these, the joyous psychedelic experiences, you enter states that you can't stay in. Of course, probably not good to stay in that state in this realm, right? I mean, we'd have to put you in my psychiatric hospital. But so he was looking for something that was more lasting, something that was more permanent. And he had this conversion experience and he quit being Richard Alport and became Ram Das and was, uh, you know, wrote this famous book, Be Here Now, which is funny to look at now. It's, it's really a child of the 60s and 70s. It's so hippie. But, um, and was successful and was a spiritual teacher, but was known for being kind of a bastard. Right? He was, you know, he was irritable. He was hot tempered. He was, uh, and then he had a massive stroke in the 90s and a, a left side of stroke. And he, lost and he was a young man you know he lost most of his I mean, like 50 you know he lost most of his ability to speak um and so so when we went to visit ram dawson i think it's probably 2016 maybe 17 at the end of 16 uh, you know he's he's an older man in a wheelchair who's paralyzed on one side who um you say you know if you say how are you this is what happens Right. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, you got to if you want to hang out and talk to Rob Doss you, you, in those days, you had to have plenty of time. Right. You know, mm -hmm. so we spent but we had this amazing experience because he, he lived in this beautiful house. He he'd been a wealthy man, um, but but his his guru told him, give away all your money. So it was like, OK, gave all his money. But lucky for him, he was so beloved that that he had, you know, followers that had money. They just mm -hmm. in his house, they just took care of him. They, they had like three people living with him gratis that, you know. And they were just all thankful that they were able to care for this kind of holy object. Um, and the strange, so 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 that is what Ram Das has to say about psychedelics. He was like, yeah, eh, they're okay, I guess. But you know, so 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 if you know, for the psychedelic fans, no, that was his uh, his take was, yeah, they could be, you know, they could be some use. They show you that that your mind can go places you didn't know it could go. But really, what you need is, uh, you know, some sort of really spiritual practice and. The thing that was powerful about Ram Das, and it's relevant to this thing when we were talking about how, you know, people that did psilocybin and, and got over their depression and then lost the benefit, what went away was this felt sense of, it's that what they call noetic quality. Like, you know, I'll tell you, but I, 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 I felt it here that, you know, and now I don't feel it there. So now I feel like crap again. Right? You know? So the thing that was powerful about Ram Das is, you know, I've, I've been in the presence of, of really, you know, spiritual leaders, you know, um, a number of them actually, uh, who yeah. I admire, like big timers, you know. Yeah. Ram Dass moved me more than any of them, flat out. Really? Yeah, it was it was a profound experience to be in his presence. And if you ask me why, I can't tell you. Mm. That's really interesting. I cannot tell you, I can just only tell you, and I'm not much for hoodoo voodoo, as you know, but but it, it um, there was something about that guy that was just unbelievably moving to me. Um, I, I have a, I, I think I had never seen, part of it was that I had never seen one human being so completely either subsumed within or subsumed another human being. And I, I have a, so Ram Das had a relationship with his guru, this Neem Karoli guy, the guy who died years ago. Mm -hmm. The guy was not dead. That dude was not dead. He was in that room and I, there was a giant picture of the, of the guy kind of back like this, you know, kind of reclining at his leisure. Uh, and I have a picture of, he, of, of him and Ram Dass sort of sitting, talking right below him. And they were sort of like the same person. 
this is one of the things I asked, I, I said this to Ram Dass, you know, and he said, yeah, I have a much closer relationship with him now than I did while he was alive. I usually don't believe that stuff. I think it's kind of like BS, you know, but I believed it. I, and I remember sitting there going, man, I cannot believe that the guy just said that. And I believe it, but, but it's, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know what, it, I don't know from a, you know, if you do away with any kind of spiritual thing, I, I don't know what it means, but that was what it felt like. Right. And so I think that combined with his humor, you know, he also said that the stroke had been his greatest blessing. And I never believed that stuff. You know, I'm always like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd say that too, because, you know, but I don't know. I believe the dude. I, I mean, I, that, that there was something about that guy that I just, I believed him. He was, uh, so yeah. So it's a little bit like psilocybin experience in that, that it was this sort of out of time experience that was intense at the time, but that never left me. Mm -hmm. you know, I, mm -hmm. So nobody ever asked me about it, you know, really sharp, a good question. Um, but it, it, you know, so it, it had, it had the qualities of a good psychedelic experience in that it was surprising, impossible to explain, um, prof profoundly moving. And, um, you know, I don't think about it as much as I should, because, you know, thinking about it sort of gives one internal fortitude. And of course, that's what he'd done with his guru, right? So I just was so fascinated from this idea of that, that as, as flawed as we are as human beings, we, we, there, there are possibilities of where you can, and this is a Buddhist idea, this is a tantric Buddhist idea, like 101, that, you know, your guru is the Buddha for you, right? That, that, that is the, you know, way more blessings than the historical Buddha, because this guy is right in front of you, right? You know, and, and, you know, there's fascinating texts saying, you know, hey, don't go investigating your, your, your guru, don't go looking for his flaws. In, in a way, don't get to know him too well, because, mm -hmm. because of course, you know, he's a human being, right? Mm -hmm. But what mm -hmm. he's for is as, as a, uh, a semaculum of the Buddha. And, you know, if he's a good guru, he's, he's far enough along that, that he can sustain that, right? You know, well, I had never seen that, frankly, in practice, but, but I saw that with Ram Dass and his guru, that that, that, that is what had happened. And it's really interesting. I, I still don't, I got to think more about this. I haven't, I have not thought about this for a couple of years, um, but it, it, it was really powerful. So yeah, I, 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 when he died, I, I felt some actual, I've already died. That was the other weird thing, right? I mean, he, he left you with this impression that if you live for a year or died tomorrow, and that's very rare. Most, you know, most of us when we're at that state is because we're suffering so much, we just want to die or whatever. No, not that. It's just like, it's like whatever that was, he had given up because of this, this self-acknowledged love relationship with his guru, right? The hardcore. And Ram Das was gay, you know, and I, I mean, I always wondered, well, did they have a sexual relationship? And and if they did, what a pity that we can't know about it because I don't know what that says, but it says something really important that we should understand. I, I don't care how he had this thing with this guy. It's just that it was like, damn, this is the most intense love relationship I've ever seen. And and that and a stroke totally transformed this guy's life. So, you know, what can we do with that? What does it mean? I just fascinating. Um, so there's there you go. That's Ram Das. Wow. Thanks, Chuck, for sharing that. That's, I mean, I can just, I can feel how, yeah. how powerful that was. And I've honestly been wanting to ask you about that for years. Just, oh, I don't know, we've not ever like had been in a space where 
right. you know, that's so been able to come it. up. But yeah, I yeah. remember when you made that trip and I remember, you know, like being so excited for you and wanting to ask you about it after. Yeah. And I guess it was like the sacredness of it is just, it wasn't, wasn't. Yeah. Time. It was so yeah. That was a, you know, it's interesting. That was a component of it, a, a, a no need to talk about it, which is also really interesting. Yeah, that's something else to think about, you know? Like, like I, I you know, I, I have not been above, um, you know, uh, some of the stuff that like talking to the dialogue and stuff, you know, I, you know, it, 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 I got some career benefit from that, right? You know, this thing with Ram Das, I never tell anybody about it, uh, you know? I mean, I just, it's, you know, I, yeah, it's just really, it's really interesting that way that it was such a private, private, powerful thing. Yeah, I mean, I would have, you know, he had this great comment. He was, somebody asked him something and, and there was this sort of contradiction. I can't remember what the content was. It took him a while to say this, but it was great. He said, well, what do you expect? We worship a monkey God, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he had a very good sense of humor, you know, Haramani, what you worship, you know? I would, if, if, if I had wanted a spiritual teacher, I, you know, I'm not Hindu. I'm much more interested in Buddhism, blah, 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 but whatever. But I would have, he would have been my man, probably. That's so funny, you know, as we're talking, every time we go, you know, deep into talking about all these things, it's like, we're like a couple of, uh, like, non, non-religious non people always like, with the disclaimers, I'm not Buddhist. I'm not I, I know, I'm not I know, Joe. I know. But, I'm, but still, I'm like drawn <laughs> yeah, to all of know. these things. <laughs> And so I mean, true. such a such a um, such a gift too to have so many so many incredible uh, teachers on the path. You know, I mean, I've, I'm just continually so grateful um, for you being on my path. Like, talk yeah. about you know career you know career benefit from being able to be with with brilliant teachers. I mean, I really owe um, this extraordinary opportunity to be able to share compassion practice and to, to support people in the way that, that we do in the center because of you and because of your vision. And I'm so, so grateful for that. And that we both, you know, have relationship with, uh, Geshe Lobsang, um, at Emory, what, what a incredible, powerful oh, light in the world he is. <laughs> oh. Absolutely. Yeah. That's been another person that's obviously been, you know, he's also been a real teacher to me. I mean, he's also been a colleague, but man, I admire that guy. Yeah. Are the two of you working on any, any projects or, or research or. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so in an interesting sort of way, yes. Um, There's some interesting politics, but yes. So, so when I, you know, I, when I left Tucson, I went to Wisconsin and I, you know, sadly for me, experienced this divorce, which I, you know, you know, but one of the outcomes of that divorce was that my ex-wife moved my children down to Georgia. And all of a sudden, I mean, I love my little kids so much. I started going down there every other week, you know, so now I'm hanging around Atlanta and word gets out that I'm kind of back. And I, this is a bad time in my life. So I, it's not like I'm, you know, pounding my chest saying, Hey, you know, I'm back. Lucky you. I'm just like, I'm just sort of skulking around, licking my wounds, but yeah. Um, I get introduced to a guy named George Grant and George Grant is the head of spiritual health at Emory and spiritual health is among other things, the chaplains, right? So Emory's got the largest chaplain training program in the United States and the chaplains do about 170, 180,000 um, visits a year. That, I mean, that's, you know, between staff and patients, it's, it's a huge thing. So George is an utter visionary. The guy's a 
genius visionary. And he knows of me and he wants to, to incorporate CBCT, cognitive based compassion training into the residency training for hospital chaplains. And, and he knows about, so, you know, he, I think really in many ways I was a doorway to Geshe Lobsang, right? And he already was talking to him, but so he took me on and I've been for now several years as a consultant, the director of research on spiritual health for Emory. And we've done a whole thing where we've been teaching hospital chaplains CBCT. And out of, of that has developed something, another acronym, CCSH, Compassion Centered Spiritual Health, which is a sort of, uh, it, it's a way of, of um, instantiating CBCT ideas at the bedside or a way of, of chaplains sort of, you know, using CBCT principles in their ministerial work or in their work as spiritual health clinicians, as we now like to call ourselves. So yeah, we've been doing this, these studies, you know, and, and we have some interesting findings. Tim Harrison, I see Tim more than I do uh, Geshe-La these days, um, uh-huh. but, but, but yeah, so there's, so this has been, you know, going on. And interestingly, uh, you know, there, there's Emory now has emerged as a, a center place of, of something that's being called psychedelic chaplaincy. Wow. Because, uh, George, being an open-minded guy, was approached um, a, a, a really sharp young palliative care researcher named Ali John Sarabi had um, gotten permission to do a, a psilocybin study in cancer survivors and had the vision to think that the second guide should be a, a chaplain, a spiritual health clinician. Oh, wow. So now there's actually a movement of, 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 of psychedelic chaplaincy that's being spearheaded by the River Sticks Foundation and folks at Harvard um, Harvard's also gearing up to do this. Um, they've got a study that they're going to do, but Emory, you know, is is now, you know, looking into this. Of can we, can we incorporate the understandings of CBCT into the psychedelic work? So you know, to so it's really, really, really interesting. So yeah, so you know, Geshe Lobsang, um, uh, you know, I probably have a dinner with him two or three times a year, so I don't get to see him that much. But but you know. Whenever anything comes up, I get the phone call, you know, and and uh, so yeah, and of course they've started this amazing, you know, compassion center there, yeah, and uh, they've been doing all this stuff. So yeah, it's an odd thing that I'm just I'm really quite involved down at Emory, um, which is so cool. I love, you know, like you, I just you know, it's been such a blessing in my life to to yeah. be able to to work with those guys, those folks. Yeah, that's great. I'm loving too hearing about the you know the convergence of. Yeah. Um, psychedelic chaplaincy with CBCT. Very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we should keep talking about that in case there's, you know, any interest in doing that uh, either in Arizona and other places. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, you're at a university that's doing psychedelic work. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, you know, talk to John Allen. Seriously, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, that, 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 that there may be some interesting, because, because CBCT is such an obvious that perspective is so obviously married to what psychedelics do when they when they do the right thing that it's really interesting i i think that there's a real opportunity there chuck thank you so much for this conversation it's always so good to connect with you i um i'm appreciating being able to to see you it's like take me back to when you were on campus and we would uh, be able to chat about all of these all these deeper things and what's coming next so yeah uh thank you i was it was great and and wonderful to talk about stuff i don't always get to talk about so 
Thanks for having me. This has been produced by Leslie Langbert in the Center for Compassion Studies in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Recorded by Gary Darnell. Edited by Gary Darnell. Special thanks to the University of Arizona's Office of Instruction and Assessment.